HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. I'm Allison Kane, and welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building consumer brands from the ground up. I love doing this show because I get to interview everyone from production gurus to marketing and social media mavens, anyone who can guide me on this crazy journey. This is the story of building Haven's Kitchen sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Jeremy Smith, founder and CEO of Launchpad, a full-service strategy, branding, and broker group focused on Costco. Jeremy has spent over 35 years in strategic sales, branding, and marketing, working with some of the world's most iconic brands, including Apple, Chobani, Crave Jerky, and Bob's Red Mill. Jeremy was named to Forbes and Circle Up's 2017 Top Catalyst Steelmakers and Influencers in the Consumer Industry. And I'm so happy you're here today. Welcome, Jeremy. Thank you for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to the uh, interview. Whenever I hear that, you know, yeah. about my career, I, I feel so old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, you could also feel so, you know, proud. Both. I guess so. Yeah. Um, I know. Well, I had a funny thing the other day where someone said something they, what they liked about me was that I had so much life experience. <laughs> I was like, ah. are you trying to say that I am old? Um, you know, I just turned 50, so I'm a little sensitive about it, but all is well. Um, so Costco, um, we had a very, I thought, I mean, I don't know about you. I thought we had a fun conversation last week. I kind of reached out to you. You know, I've been watching you on LinkedIn. I obviously listened to you on um, Dr. James's, you know, podcast. You seem like you know what you're doing here. You have experience, you have thoughts. And I like that you were very blunt. Um I told you that we wanted to do this right. You said you'll know whether it will work within two weeks, basically, <laughs> of launching there. Um, and so, you know, I guess I'd like to just start off with a little bit of 
any big picture thoughts you have about when a brand should think about Costco, what brands should not maybe think about Costco, you know, what are the sort of, you know, you evaluate a bunch of us coming through your doors, trying to get you to represent us, you know, what are, what's your little checklist in your mind or even, you know, actual? Well, when we look at brands, um, when we first started out in the business over 22 years ago, we were focused on items. Um, then we, we ran into a lot of founders who couldn't get themselves out of a one-room apartment or a studio. Mm-hmm. And so they were never going to be successful. And so even though they had a great idea, which there's so many people that have great ideas, but they don't understand how to get them to market and then build a supply chain and everything else. And um, they believe they can do it. So we went through that period early on back in 2002. And um, then we started focusing on the team first. And when we look at all of our data, team um, generally will, um, the right team will outperform um, a good idea Mm -hmm. um, almost every time. And so our success rate went way up um, when we started focusing solely on the teams and then the items second. Um, And we found that our companies could grow quickly and adapt well at Costco. So those were important factors. But the other factor is too many entrepreneurs and founders don't take the time to set up their pricing correctly in the beginning. And so the first time you should think about Costco is the first time you start setting your pricing for retail groceries. So, or whatever channels you're going into, because too often brands don't look at Costco. They, they put it in their, their um, business plan or their mission and, they will get there in two to five years and then they'll go to Costco, which is an okay plan. But if you haven't thought about or looked at or gained some knowledge on how Costco wants to price things, um, then what happens quite a bit, and we had a very successful client who had a good business outside of Costco, but he could never get to the right value at cost because he never he never took the time to um, price um, his product correctly for both markets, and so, um, so thinking about it, you you really have to focus on uh, day one when you're ready to roll out to whatever channels you're going into, because um, Costco doesn't focus on value as at retail as much as they focus on value at cost which is the um, price that you're selling to your distributor or if you're selling directly to a, a, a retailer, right. um, minus 20%. They want to be at least 20%. So if you were going to UNFI, um, you want to know that um, you can meet those margin requirements that Costco has on the value it costs so that you know, if, if you're selling to Cahey, let's say for $10, you're mm-hmm. going to have to sell to Costco for $8. Right. And so 
Um, those things are important. And then when we look at our, our third and final evaluation is um, it's really easy to move through promotion, um, you know, take an item at, at grocery that needs to do four to six units a week. How does that translate in a larger format for Costco right. into uh, dollar sales per week? So, for example, I knew right away that kale with chips would never be a highly successful item at Costco <laughs> where you're there every day because I could never imagine a bunch of guys watching the Super Bowl saying, hey, we're going to be serving nothing but kale at, at right. the event. I just want to let you know. And you walk <laughs> in with your 22-ounce bag of kale, and then you have it, and then you know, um, next Super Bowl runs around and you don't have to go buy any more kale because you still have last year. <laughs> right. So you, you so is that is that more of like a is that more of a consumer behavior question or is it just that there are just some things that just in the Venn diagram don't overlap with the way Costco works? You know what I mean? I, I think it's a little bit of both, but mm -hmm. it's more about consumer behavior. Right. Because um, ultimately the consumer is going to decide. So you have to look at, in order to be in there, we're talking about everyday and everyday item because that's what I'm focusing on. I'm not trying to get a bunch of rotational items. So um, if if you, you know, like I hear founders speaking at Project Nosh and at Expo West and they're talking about how they're killing it at Costco. Mm -hmm. And then you find out they're doing like 1800 a week. That's not really killing it at Costco. Um, but they tell everyone that they're killing it because they <laughs> think they are, but you know, right. Chobani can do $6,000 a week at Costco. That's killing it. Right. Um, you know, Kirkland signature items can do four to $10,000 a week per warehouse. That's killing it. Telling me you're doing 1,200 a week is okay, but um, uh, you know you have to have an item that can move quickly. Generally, the the number runs about uh, in order in, in order to be considered a regular item, you got to be able to get unit movements at around selling a pallet, turning a pallet every 14 to 21 days at a Costco warehouse. Okay, so there's a lot that I want to unpack there, starting with the team. So I totally hear you. <clears throat> I've seen lots of things about like great ideas executed by the wrong team, don't go anywhere, mediocre ideas executed by a killer team are killer in a lot of ways. In your opinion, what is that difference? I mean, a lot of us are trying to figure out hiring and you know, in this environment, we really want to make smart hires. We want to make thoughtful hires. We're probably not going to be making too many hires unless we've just done a big funding round. You know, what what are the qualities? Is it past experience? Is it coming from a bigger company? Is it um, just the, the way that connectivity works among the people? You know, when you say great team, what are a couple of things that you mean specifically when you're talking about that? Well, you need to, first of all, there's no shortage in the food and beverage industry of um, people with experience. Um, 
Uh, obviously, if someone's coming in to your office interview position, you're looking for someone that can achieve a certain set of, of, of criteria that you have. But, um, you know, we've learned a lot from brands over the years who have brought in these super duper general mills, uh, mm-hmm. craft Heinz people that, uh, understand nothing about innovation because to them innovation is, um, putting probiotics into Cheerios or something like that. Right, that, that right. That's not true innovation. Um, and it's not disruptive. We, we have a term we use called do D U E, which is disruptive, unique and exclusive. And so those are things that we like to see in an organization. But the best example is um, if if you're truly going to hit your your sales goals, mm-hmm. you need a a really strong leader on the manufacturing and supply chain side. Yep. And then on a sales side, you need people that are driven and know how to build momentum and most companies don't know how to build momentum. They know how to lose momentum, but they don't know how to build it. They don't spend any time on it. And the most successful stories in retail, you won't find on LinkedIn in the same way. You know, everybody on LinkedIn, LinkedIn is, it's, it really should be, it's the, the Zoloff social media site because Nothing ever goes wrong. I know. It's all amazing. We're all killing it. There are lots of rocket ships flying all over the place. Yeah. Yeah. There's two There's two I can't stand, which are we're killing it and we're crushing it. I actually, I feel like I wrote that in a post. So if you haven't followed me, Jeremy, please do. I better. Because I also don't like the rocket ship emoji. I like the little hiker emoji. And I actually made a post a couple months ago where I was like, I'm never going to put a rocket ship anywhere. It's always going to be this little hiker because that is honest. And this little person's just like trying to scale this big mama mountain one step at a time, one door at a time, one investor at a time. I don't, I don't believe in the whole like, woo. Um, but you know, again, that's for another thing, but, um, I do love this, you know, to, I think a lot of people and maybe this might be, you, you mentioned when you've talked about team, you talked about operations first and you talked about sales. I think a lot of brands have been very hyper-focused on their marketing teams, um, bringing in performance marketing. You know, a lot of brands have gotten their start digitally and they've really leaned hard on that part of the business. And it's almost like there's a little bit of a kickback over to like, people who know how to manage co-packers, people know, who know procurement, people who know how to build an innovation pipeline. Those skills um, seem to be what you're talking about. Yeah, th- th- those things are very important. There, it, It's also, you know, um, it, I, I think one of the bigger lessons is when to say no. Um, yeah. Too often companies are trying to, no, no one really gives a shit how many doors you're in. It's really about velocity. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I will say, and this is something, this is a little bit of an aside from Costco, but it is interesting because it's come up with a lot of my founder friends lately. They, I think investors say 
they aren't as interested in top line. They're more interested in profitability. They really want to talk about margin. They want quality of revenue, not necessarily just scope. Um, And I think they mean it. And my guess is that they're looking more at that. Um, Well, they're a bunch of idiots too. They they just... But they're the ones funding us, sir. You know, they're the ones that are like, you know, we're we're pitching to and we're trying to get that next chunk of money from. And there is something about getting enough scale early on, just getting above that 10 million in sales in a way, you know, just to get that momentum rolling. Um yeah, but eighty yeah. percent of the the market never gets above ten million, and and so there there is a shitload of brands that spend all a crap load of money at Expo West, which mm-hmm. is the biggest racket going. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, there's two people. I always say there's two people in this whole ecosystem that always make money, and that are trade shows and, and brokers. And, <laughs> No, just kidding. Just kidding. Jeremy. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, you know, so not all items are successful. So if you as a broker, if you bet on somebody and you go out and the item flops or yeah. does okay, you know, maybe in commission, you're in 1200 bucks. That, that's, that's not a, that's not a, a windfall, but the other people that make money all the time are co-packers. They hardly right. ever lose. It's like Vegas. Yeah. So, <laughs> So, but, but, but the, the key thing is a velocity story where yeah. you overperform at a retailer is a better story than somebody saying I'm in 12,000 yeah. um, stores, but my velocity is middle of the pack because yeah. for an investor coming in, where's the growth story there? There isn't right. really one. So um, yeah. That's how, I mean, I mean, that's how I look at it. I, I mean, it's, I, I'm glad, I mean, we're on the same page, I think about a lot. I've just in our few short conversations and our story has always been a velocity story. And I think especially when you're doing something actually unique and innovative, it's got it. it's going to be a slower, you know, doors aren't going to come knocking down because we're still trying to figure out where we do best in the store. And we're still trying to educate buyers on why sauce is fresh and why it's in a pouch and what the hell is chimichurri. And people who listen to this hear me talk about it all the time. I think that, you know, it's just, we keep our eye on repeat and velocity, velocity, velocity. Um, And there is, I think, you know, you can grow in the stores that you're in, but we do have to start proving out our conventional channel. You know, our natural channel, we outperform everyone we're next to pretty much all the time. Conventional, it's a little trickier because we're going to be next to salad dressings that are $2.99. So it's a different story a little bit. And then getting back to Costco, you know, when you were talking about everyday products versus rotation products, you know, how do we know? How, how how does a brand like me know if we're going to make it from a groovy 4th of July grilling rotation to an everyday, you know, maybe not at Chobani's level, but that can reach that? 
in the next couple of years? What are the indicators there, would you say? Well, the indicators, again, go back to velocity performance, even at Costco. So you, you can't, you can't um, take an item that does $600 a week and turn it into a $2,000 a week item. It just, mm-hmm. it just doesn't happen. Do mm-hmm. So a lot of it really comes down to the most um, least spoken about part of this business, which is the consumer. Because the consumer ultimately either connects to your brand and decides that he or she wants to support it or they don't. And all, almost all failures in the end, um, the main thing is that the consumers didn't love the product the way you did. And so, um, you know, that, that's the, the, the key thing about it is that, you know, so how do you build a brand that is um, both authentic, resonates with the consumer, but is not designed by the consumer? Because that's, as Steve Jobs said, a recipe right. for failure because yeah. consumers don't know what they want until the you Ford put it quote, in front of them. Yeah, they want faster horses. Yeah. Right, right. Yep. Because, you know, most people are happy with what they have, even if they're miserable. Right. So, so yeah. You know, they don't want to switch because they might bring home something that's worse right. than what they they had before. And so, um, you know, you have to truly understand your consumer more than the buyer. Because I always hear people talk about how, what great relationships they have with the buyer. Most of that's that's all psychological babble in their head that they, you know, they buy into the hype about it. But like at Costco... Buyers don't give a shit. They'll cut you in two seconds, even mm-hmm. if you're doing well. Their their business is about their, their member. Member, yeah. That's it. That's all they care about. They don't care about you. You're not going on a ski trip with them like you might at a a grocery store. You're not going to spend time very much time with these people. And and you know, it, I hear this all the time about brokers saying what great relationships they have with the buyers. And I know it's bullshit because I've talked to the buyers about it. Right. And, and you know, and, you know, even a brand like Stacy's Pita Chips and Shivani got canceled at Costco because they wanted to, Costco wanted to try other brands. And so right. Costco's almost really an incubator for small brands and a, or, and, or a giant focus group because it it's so different and they can turn so fast. Like when, I always tell this story because it's a it's a good example of how fast Costco can move and how slowly at best grocers move. And so um, years ago, um, goji berries were the hottest thing mm-hmm. in the world. I remember. And um, when it faded, which was about 60 seconds after it took <laughs> off, mm-hmm. um, Costco was out of goji berries in 60 days. The supermarkets were out in a year. Yeah. And so they then wound up missing other opportunities because they couldn't turn fast. Costco yeah. can turn so quickly. It's it's unbelievable. They can be out of any category and into another category um, a year ahead of a grocery store. Wow. 
Wow. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about that pricing structure. And I want to go back to something you said about building the brand. So we'll be right back. I'm Chaba Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family owned and operate distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle, 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred, my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. HRN is home to transformative exchanges about food. We hope our diverse lineup of shows opens your eyes, educates, and empowers. I spent seven years working in the restaurant and bar industry in front of house and back of house. And I just feel like Heritage Radio Network's content helps me feel so well connected to the other creators and chefs and restaurateurs and all the amazing things that they're doing. I still feel like I get to be a part of the kind of in team. Join us during our summer membership drive by donating and becoming a member. Members play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org/donate to become a member today. We thank you for your support. I'm back with Jeremy Smith, founder and CEO of Launchpad. Okay, so when uh, let's talk about the the brand building first because I feel like there might be two different types of building the brand. Like there's building the brand in sort of the general, you know, natural better for you cool kid Instagram TikTok world. And then it feels like there's a whole other building the brand within the walls of Costco. So I'm sure that obviously like you, you're trying to get people from the outside world who are like, oh, I've seen this before. I recognize this. I buy this at fill in the blank. I, I've heard about this. Now I'm going to get a three pack or a big size. But is there also a, I mean, I feel like Costco has its own sort of marketing ecosystem and that, and we should be prepared to participate in that. You don't just go there and you're done. Right. It It's similar, but very different than um, um, the uh, grocery world. But the thing with Costco is the brands that generally do the best have uh, existing distributions so that they have a built-in base when they go to Costco because right. people recognize the brands. The ones that usually underperform and do the worst are the ones that don't have the type of distribution and founders 
often overestimate the ability of their brand to reach people mm-hmm. because they can they can um, uh, demo at Costco and um, overcome all of that, but um, it's it's not it's really not the case. And you know, years ago when Costco started out, you know there was a real treasure hunt mentality mm-hmm. because Costco would bring in a lot of the emerging brands. But it, the business has changed quite a bit at Costco over the years as, um, you know, consumers have changed how they pick brands. It's, it's just, it's a lot different now. And, you know, the, the, for, you know, every item that goes to Costco for the very first time or launches really early with Costco um, there used to be a much higher percentage of success, right? But now it's much more difficult because there's so many private label Kirkland signature items mm-hmm. at Costco that, um, and the members seem to really love Kirkland love signature. Yep. Um, problem, in fact, in many of the categories, if not almost all of them, the Kirkland signature brand outsells the leading brand in the category. So, yeah. Um, you know, so, even they sold, they even outsold five hour energy, which owns with you know, they have own, a 78% market share. Yeah. I mean, people, it's interesting. It's kind of like a Trader Joe's person. Like they, they really trust and love. It's kind of amazing. I mean, Costco did an amazing job building that private label brand. Um, it's a little challenging for the emerging brands because why are they bringing them in? Are they bringing them in? to gain ideas on, you know, what they can copy next? Or is it, you know, because they feel like they should keep some percentage of the store? You know, is it is it categories where they don't think they can, you know, waste the time competing? Is it all of the above? Um, it's it, it it's a little bit of of everything. Um uh I think Costco likes to bring new items in. Um you have to remember Costco focuses a lot on the local market. They have eight U.S. Uh, buying offices. So, um, you know, there could be a small specialty brand sauce that does really well in the Texas area. Mm-hmm. And so they'll give that an opportunity to come in there. Um, they usually don't stick, but, um, you know, there are there are exceptions to the rules where something takes off like uh, – Keto Pints, which really launched at Costco and um, became a big success in the ice cream category at Costco. But um, for the most part, a lot of the stories you hear are really from five to 10 years ago, and a lot has changed over right. that period of time. And it's not, it's, not, it's not the same market. You need to be more precise and more... Um, uh, widely distributed yep. if you want long-term success um, yeah. and give yourself the best opportunity because once you get stuck with your numbers if they're mid-range or below you're you're screwed it's mm-hmm. it's not you know it's not easy to bring you know a dead brand at Costco it doesn't mean you're a dead but you could be you know not every item as I said earlier on about the kale not every Whole Foods or Sprouts or or other item is um, 
going to do well at Costco, even right. though it may overperform. I've had items that are the number one selling item at Whole Foods in their category, and they bomb at Costco because mm -hmm. it didn't translate well into a larger size, or they didn't have enough distri distribution, but still wanted to go go to the opportunity. So to me, right. it's like a fine wine. Um, you know, you, you don't guzzle a fine wine. You, you you sip. And so you you really have to think long and hard about your strategy. And I, I would say that, because I hear this from clients that I say, no, you're not ready more than any other broker. Right. Because I I don't want to spend all my time no, of course, yeah. trying to build brand and I got a whole bunch of bombs. So Yeah. Um, and I mean, it, it puts us in a really bad position because obviously it costs a lot to to do the experiment. So you really want everything is lined up for success. I mean, obviously there's no sure thing, um, but you know, it, it takes a lot of bandwidth from the team and cash and, you know, it's, it's no small feat um, for, for most of us at least. But I also want to go back to something, you know, you were talking about the treasure hunt mentality of the past and consumers are choosing brands differently now. And I think I know what you mean. I mean, obviously, generally, consumers are discovering digitally, um, whereas probably, you know, that was starting to happen in 2017, 2018, but really accelerated tremendously during the pandemic. Um, people are, you know, perhaps not as loyal to their brands as they once were. Um, you know, there is some consumer shifting, obviously, but when you're speaking specifically about why something maybe would have worked at Costco and why now it, it wouldn't as well, or what you, what you need to really have in place to work at Costco, like what did you mean specifically when you were talking about consumers choosing brands differently? Um, consumers, while, while most brands are not um, aware of it as deeply as the consumers are, consumers are becoming much more um, uh, demanding of values from brands. And so mm -hmm. um, that is one part of this shift. And you're going to see this now with um, the whole issue over um, abortion rights. A lot of consumers are asking, well, where do you stand as a company? And a lot of companies like Walmart's decided to keep their mouth shut, but Obviously, we all know where they right. stand and where they <laughs> yeah. put their money. Yeah, into they're, guns. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. They're, they're squarely mm -hmm. uh, in, in favor of um, eliminating abortion. So they don't want to go out because they've donated to the campaign. So, um, so that's one aspect to it is that, mm -hmm. You had the millennials and then the Z's. You got all these groups that are. They want to support I, value, values driven brands. And right. Now, the product still has brand. to be, you know, <laughs> you, great. You know, you look at a brand like Patagonia mm -hmm. and they've held their values for years. And that's why a lot of people shop there and buy their products is because they like what the company stands for. Mm -hmm. and, and then you get. Other brands that you have no idea what they stand for, but you know are cheap. The, the the other thing that's happening that's having a bigger impact is 
is that private label is really accelerating growth. And um, especially millennials are not as brand driven as my generation was. Um, and so um, to them, you know, if they can buy something they normally would pay a dollar nineteen an ounce for right. for fifty nine cents, and they believe it's just as good, they'll buy that right now. And I see you. You know, I think that's why Costco, over the last fifteen years, has gone from twelve percent of their business being private label to thirty two percent. Yep. Yeah. And, no. And, interesting. You know, they don't. Co- co- costs a lot of money to develop a private label item. But the return at Costco, especially, is much greater for them than a brand, and yeah, so that makes so sense. they make they make an extra point to two points usually off of a private label brand. And so, if Costco is going to go down that route, um, you know, they're and and more consumers gravitate towards that. Which John Hagen, who used to be at Three Hundred One Inc. and General mm-hmm. Mills, um spoke i think it was a year about a year or two before the um uh uh, before covid hit us um all about private label and how fast private label was coming up and that it was the single largest threat to branded products is private label and that continues to be your biggest Everyone always thinks of their competitors like Mm-mm. Ruffles has Lay's, um, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and Annie's competes against this brand. But in the end, private label um, is your biggest threat, yep. uh, according to a lot of people. I, yeah. I don't spend that much time thinking about it. But. Well, I think it's partly why those of us who focused on like building a real moat around our supply chain and having like a very defensible you know, basically operations system and making a product that isn't easy to just go find a co-packer to make. Um, You know, I mean, there's a lot of things. I think I started this podcast, you know, in 2018, wanting it to be like, here's how, you know, everyone can do this. And, you know, four years later, I'm like, don't do this unless you have like a lot of these chips kind of like ready to go because it's, you know, it's coming at us from all angles. I put a LinkedIn post today up and it was, you know, supply chain's never been tougher. You know, freight is insane. Cost of everything is nuts. Then you have, you know, no labor in the actual grocery stores and buyers just like leaving. So resets are all wonky. You know, fortunately for us, we've never really depended on Instagram ads. Most of our marketing's been organic. So, you know, we feel kind of like saved by the bell on that one. But people have been leaning on performance marketing and like, quote unquote, growth for the last couple of years or, you know, having a bit of a shellacking. Um, it's just, it's a very hard industry to be in right now, full stop. And then when you have grocery stores that are getting really good at, you know, they've had the supply chains and they obviously have the distribution, but what they've gotten really good at over the last couple of years is the innovation and the branding. You know, it's, it used to be like, Ooh, the private label. Now it's like, now it's a brand. You know, the good and gather brand, people are associating good things with these brands. I I always go back to Trader Joe's too, because 
I don't know what percentage of people know that that's owned by Aldi. They actually think there's like a Joe and he's trading and he's making these like happy products for them. I mean, it's, it's wild. They've done like a, a genius job marketing essentially a private label machine. Yeah, it's interesting because Trader Joe's is the closest in many ways to the Costco model in that they have a limited SKU space, uh, um, allotted SKUs. And right. so um, they have a very small set compared to, like you might go in and see two different salads, one with raisins, one without. Mm-hmm. Um you know, and they they may have a lot of cookies, but they're all very different. They don't have right. like five or ten chocolate chip cookies, right? And so you go in, you buy their chocolate chip cookie, and um, that's it. And then you you know you you accept that. Um, so so I think that um, uh, there's a real lesson here. I think long term for grocery in that large. SKU space is, is, you know, allotting a lot of SKUs um, doesn't necessarily correlate with success. And so, you know, a lot of grocery stores um, struggle with um, figuring out who they really are as to where, why Costco has been so successful is they're still the very same thing that they've always been over a long period of time. And so the, the um, expectations are always the same and um, they know, they know who they are and they know who they aren't. And one of the things that they, they truly are is not an e-commerce company, although they're doing well in that, that's not their business. Um, So, you know, it's um, they've expanded it quite a bit but they want people in the warehouses. That's their business. Yep. So going back to the model hasn't changed. So we were fortunate enough, I think everyone knows this too, we were in the Chobani incubator a few years ago. And fortunately, we were given basically like an Excel where we could plug in a bunch of numbers that were specifically for like what Costco could look like for us. And it had to be, you know, no more than 20% of this and no more than 40% of that. And the price had to be this and the margin that. And then you had a, you know, accrual for something. And, you know, the marketing spend was considered part of the thing. And it was this whole sheet that, you know, I look at and go cross-eyed. But basically, where can people who are not fortunate enough to be in the Chobani incubator, like, how are we, how are brands supposed to know you know, we talk about, you know, yes, you want to have wide distribution, certainly in the region that you're going for. You want to have brand awareness so that you're not trying to build it all once you're at the warehouse, because that's a recipe for disaster. You want to have operations so that you can scale, so that you can make sure that you are making that product and you're able to, and you obviously want to have the cash to do that. But the sales structure, that that sales plan, um, it you know, are there a couple of things you just, you're like, if you have this, this, and this in place, then that's all you really know before you go find someone to help you as in a broker or, you know, like, how are we supposed to know how to make that sales slope? 
essentially. Well, in the in the olden days when we didn't have Google, mm -hmm. um, we would you'd go to the library, but um, <laughs> um, it's the on next, Google. The next best thing is um, uh, is to build your own, not board of directors if if you're early on as a company, but a knowledge of advisors, and you should pay them. And um, it's important that you meet with these people on a regular basis and you have a group that um, covers all your weaknesses, somebody who knows ops, somebody who knows sales, somebody who knows branding. Um, you know, those things are all important to giving you the access that you need now. I, I worked with a company um, we did all their design work through our partner uh, Market Brand. Did all their did their trade show booth, did all their branding, their logo, you name it. And um, um, that was one of the first things I advised them is to put together a knowledge base of people that you talk to on a regular basis about one or two topics a month, um, and really focus on tapping into that and if you don't do that and a lot of smaller companies don't do that right. they'll go to somebody like Matson and blow three hundred thousand dollars on product development which I, I i think Matson is a great product development company but that spending three hundred thousand dollars right out the door that sounds crazy to have, yeah. yeah but people do, yeah, yeah. Brands it's do like it it's time. like the the um packaging too. People spend so much money on that and they don't even have any sort of product market fit. They don't know who their consumer is. They don't know what goes on the front. You know, they haven't done. Well, well so here's the problem yeah, yeah. with that is that um, most, most founders don't understand packaging um, and marketing because they don't necessarily teach that in college or um, in an MBA program or anything like that. And, and um, you know, I started out in the ad and design industry. And if, if too many brands go to a small packaging firm uh, mm -hmm. when they're out of the gate, pay five to 6,000 bucks, and then they have their packaging, they go launch the product and it's not selling, and then they realize their messaging and their packaging don't line up. Mm -hmm. um, you shouldn't be going anywhere near a packaging firm that um, uh, a packaging design firm, unless they also do branding and can right. help you understand the marketplace. I'm a firm believer that every company should spend more money on design and branding and working on crafting and how you're going to tell the story and defining all of that before you even sit down and start designing. And so right. if you go to a one person shop, that's, you're not going to get all that stuff. You're going to get a great price of, of which there'll be very little value. And I, and I've seen this too often with brands that spend $5,000 and then they wind up spending $5,000 to redesign and then $5,000 right. to redesign again. And Death so by a thousand it, cuts. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. then before you know it, they've spent $50,000 accomplishing nothing. And yeah. so, um, 
you know, before you even make your product, you should understand who you are and what your brand is yeah. and what you're trying to achieve. And um, if you can't do that, then you shouldn't go into business because you just don't understand the market. And too many people think they can just wing it and 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 get out there and do it. And that's why so many of the brands never get to 10, above 10 million because there's there's just no way they just don't have the experience and understanding and they haven't put put the structure in place that allows them to be successful and control their costs. Um, so I, I think um, but I'm a big believer in doing it right and spending the money. And yeah. I don't understand why somebody would spend three hundred thousand or two hundred thousand or a hundred thousand um, on creating a product with somebody like Matson or someone else and um, not spend that kind of money on the most important part, which is you always have to remember, you've only got one customer, not the right. buyer. Everyone thinks it's the buyer because it's, it's the consumer. Right. And so if you're not focused and like Chobani was the master at understanding their consumer, you know, crave jerky. They were told women won't buy jerky. Well, most women are more sophisticated than men, and they they don't want to sit there like a truck driver with tobacco in one side of the mouth in the mouth, and in the other side they're they're yanking and pulling at piece <laughs> of jerky. But John Sebastiani understood that if he created flavors and a soft jerky, that he could build a very successful business, and he did. But that's unique because right. um, that. But that's the type of thing you have to do to be successful. And I know? think I think it's gotten a little more complex. And I'll explain my thinking. I think that with the rise of direct to consumer products and brands, the focus on that branding, the storytelling has been out of sight everyone's really good at telling who they are and what they believe in and the background and the story. I do think that a package on a website with white space around it on like a, you know, PDP, right? Like a, just a page that's just you is a very different environment than when you put your package on a shelf with 40 other things, half of them are knocked over. Some of them are out of stock. There are tags all around it's dark, you know, I think direct to consumer packaging is inherently different from retail shelf packaging, which is something that I think people are getting a little bit of an understanding of as they as you know, a lot of my friends are sort of leaning more into the wholesale channel. And then I think to your point, something you said the other, you know, day was Costco packaging is different even from retail packaging, right? You're on these pallets. Again, you're in a warehouse. You know, what the person walking by sees is different from what they see when they're walking at Whole Foods or what they see when they're scrolling on their computer. So putting the time into making sure, I mean, you said something about the lighting and the color on the box, you know, that's pretty granular, but it makes a big difference. So Tell me a little bit about, you know, what you've seen work well, and you don't have to mention any brands in particular, because I'd also like to hear what you've seen hasn't worked well. And obviously, I don't think you want to mention any brands in particular. 
Oh, I don't mind. Um, <laughs> they uh, might. <laughs> they, they, they know how I feel. So um, it's not like I didn't tell them that and they'd be hearing this for the first time. You know, okay. I, there's, I, the, the number one reason I turn down brands is because they don't understand design or branding. Mm-hmm. And um, they think that what's inside the bag is um, more important and it's not because the first consumer interaction is outside of the bag and it sets your expectations. So it also goes um, the other way though. I hate to interrupt you, but it also goes the other way. I have seen some of the most phenomenal design and branding and packaging with really disappointing products in the last couple of years. A lot of things that I'm like, this doesn't really need to exist, but it looks really good. You know? Well, I'll say the advantage to that is um, at least they attracted the consumer in the beginning. But um, um, where I've seen great products that like surprise me because the packaging was so horrible. Yes. Like I've got something on my desk right now that uses the biggest design, any any design firm that um, recommends a a uh, yellow background with white type um <laughs> you should run from them right. because while it looks beautiful standing up i have this now about 2 feet away from me and i can't read any i have no <laughs> idea what flavor it is and yet um you know cuz i could do a whole program just on cuz i know so many of the designers that, you know, a lot of them, big, big firms designed to win award shows and they don't give a shit about the client. Right. But, um, so this, this has the flavor profile, but you can't read it. And then when you go into like a Costco where the lighting is not the same, and that's why I work with market brand is because when I, I know when they work with one of our clients on design, on a redesign, usually, um that they're Costco certified by me. So right. I've I spent hours with Eric Reed touring Costco's and showing them, well, look at it during now, you know, we went in during the winter and in the summer, and he said, Yeah, you're right. They turn off all these lights and now you can't see that. And so um um but one of the, the other things from a structural standpoint is that um, most of the products at Costco go into a master carton, which is both an advantage yeah. and a disadvantage because sometimes you can't see um, the bottom of the box or the pouch. Right. You can't really see the pouch. And so right. that's why most buyers recommend um, you put your call, your important call outs at, near the top of the bag or at right. least you know, the first three inches, but some firms won't do it, you know, and, right. and, uh, um, you know, and I said, well, no one's going to know what the fuck's inside that box. So right. <laughs> I said, you just cost us 35% in sales if we go forward with your packaging. And it also means that that master carton needs to be like banging in terms of messaging and drawing in that consumer and attracting people to come over to even see what's in the master cart. Yeah. And, and so, you know, um, I, I always used to get an argument with the real diehard, uh, organic folks because 
they did not understand that the USDA organic logo um, compared to the GMO GMO logo, the, the, what the GMO project did that was really bad, it was smart on their part, mm-hmm. is that they convinced consumers that organic items yep. were not GMO free unless they had the, the butterfly logo on there. And that I don't blame on the GMO, GMO project. I blame all of the organic companies and, and uh, USC. And they said, well, our consumer's smart. I said, yes, at Whole Foods, right. we're smart. But when you go to Costco, you have to pick up the conventional Safeway, Vons, uh, Wegmans. You have, to, you have to pick up those supermarkets, the Kroger's. And so you can't, it's very difficult to take an item that is only in natural and specialty and build it into a super item at Costco. Now, are there exceptions to the rule? Of course there are. But for the most part, you need to connect to both the conventional consumer and the natural consumer to build build your brand. And that's where some of the plant-based items have struggled Right. Is that they haven't been in both channels or they've spent their lives living in a world where they were in the higher end places where people are willing to spend $12 for a plant-based item and the animal protein product is, is $4. So, um, but they'll eventually get around to it or they'll go out of business. Right. So, um, but, but those are some of the things that you, you have to take into account and there's there's a lot of thinking and a lot of parts and pieces that have to come together in order for you to be successful with a brand and then the other thing which i don't think we touched on is that any new item that goes into costco um and this happens at costco more than anywhere else um will be copied um by the competitors uh very quickly and will come after you and that's why it's so important that you're constantly reminding the Costco buyers of, you know, what makes your brand right, how special. Great you are. Right. Um, because otherwise they'll just buy the, the other brand that's 20% less. And yeah. you can't expect the buyer to remember everything you told them. And the world's not about you. It's about them. Yeah. Founders, you know, we, it's a, it's an interesting sort of, little echo chamber that a lot of us, you know, I, I understand it. We have to protect ourselves. We're literally tap dancing pretty much for everyone all the time. So we do have to have these little, we have to love and sort of obsess over our product and our team and our brand. Otherwise it'd be hard to get out of bed, honestly, (laughs) a lot of the time. But I think that, you know, sometimes especially new, maybe this is a little ageist on my part, but younger, right? Like they take the message a little too far and they kind of put up these little blinders and they close their ears to some stuff. And I don't know that that's ever helped anyone. Um, But my last question. Oh, go ahead. Before we go is what have you seen a founder do in a pitch or present or anything that you've been like, that's where I want to put my money. Like that is a horse that I want to, you know, bet oh, that's on. an easy one. Um, Paul Coletta, uh, <laughs> CEO of urban remedy, best, one of the best CEOs I've ever seen in a meeting. 
Um, no bullshit, straight shooter, very authentic. Didn't use a PowerPoint um, crutch is what I call them presentation at all. Could tell a story coherently. Um, and the buyers loved them because um, they weren't spending their time reading green, a green eggs and ham PowerPoint presentation mm-hmm. where the person was pitching it. He knew everything about his business. And um, any did he question, bring like, did he bring no, like a master case with product? No. It? Like they had no idea what he was, what the visual was. At no, that point? We, we brought them the items that were sold at Whole Foods to right. look at. And they didn't need anything else. They made the decision on the spot. And Love so it. people overthink this process too much. It's a conversation you're going to have with a buyer. You don't have to bring all the bells and whistles. You have to show you really know your business. And, yeah. um, you know, when, when a buyer understands that that CEO really knows his or her business, which is rare, um, um, and brands do not spend enough time rehearsing before going in. Um, you know, it's it's just it's just such a pleasure to be with with somebody. And I'll give you a different I, uh, story. I, I brought a guy in. I spent a week and a half coaching him on what to do and what to say. And I said, whatever you do, we're going to see a buyer in the Bay Area. Do not whip out your PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> Hold on to it until it's late. It's later in the discussion because this buyer, what she will do is she will turn to page whatever in mm-hmm. your PowerPoint presentation and just focus on the pricing. Right. She's not going to hear a word you're you you've, you're mm-hmm. saying. And what was the first thing he did when he walked in the meeting? He, he was like. Uh he whipped out the PowerPoint presentation. She went to the, the pricing thing and that's all she wanted. Oh, this is way too high. Right. So that's the first thing out of the buyer's mouth pretty much when we got into the presentation was it's too yep. expensive. It, but I then got her distracted because I know she's a big Red Sox fan <laughs> and, I, and the Red Sox were at first and I started talking about it and then we were able to get back to the presentation. But you know, she was still fixated on the price and, right. you know, and that's a bad CEO and that's why he's struggling. And he never, he's been through four brokers now and he's, he's still never been in Costco. Wow. Okay. Well, Jeremy, thank you. Um, hopefully for everyone listening, that will not be your, <laughs> I wanted to end on like a happy note. Um, that won't be your story, but it is really helpful to hear, you know, it's like everything else, have your ducks in a row, know what you need to know, do your research. You know, I think, um, this is not a business to wing it ever. It's just not, um, it's, the margins are too thin and there's too much that can go wrong. Um, research has never hurt anybody. So Jeremy, I want to thank you so much for, coming on and for, you know, hopefully working with Haven's Kitchen in the future and um, for all of this great advice. Thank you. And Armin, as always, thank you for your engineering. Thank you for making it work. Um, and I appreciate your flexibility with me. 
and all of the listeners um, love your DMs. I, you know, I try to respond to all of them. It has been a bit of a couple of weeks, so I haven't gotten to everyone, but I do appreciate it. And um, let me know how I can help. And um, I will be back next week with another episode of In the Sauce. In the Sauce is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.